Hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Tim Ripper Owens. This is Bobby Bliss from Overkill. You stay tuned. Hey, this is Ron Bumble for Fall of Guns N' Roses, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dave Windor from Monster Magnet. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Kiske talking. Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Stilter. Hey, everybody, what's happening? This is John Bush, and you're cranking it up on Mars Attacks. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Don Jameson from That Metal Show on VH1 Classic. Hey, everybody, this is your big daddy-o, Gene Hoagland. Hey, this is Kurt Winstein from Crowbar. Hey, Metalhead from Hit Magnus. This is Dolo Passion. Hi, this is Conrad Peace, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hi, yeah, okay, so hey, this is Paul Shortino. How you doing? Formerly of Rough Cut, Quiet Riot, and currently with King Cobra. You're listening to Mars Attack. <laughs> hey, what's up, everyone? This is Mark from Chimera. This is Vinny Apsey from Kill Devil Hill, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Richard Christie from the band Charred Walls of the Damned on Metal Blade Records. And you are listening to Mars Attack. Yeah, this is John Schaefer from Iced Earth, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, this is Rex Brown from Kill Devil Hill, and you're listening to Mars Attacks with Victor.
Gates of Hell by Kill Devil Hill. Kicking things off right here on episode 61 of the Mars Attacks podcast. Welcome one and all. I'm your host Victor. And for this episode we have an interview with Kill Devil Hill's founding member, Vinny Apice. You know Vinny from Dio, Black Sabbath, World War Three, Axis. He's played with Rick Derringer. He's played Nine Chambers, Three-Legged Dog, uh, with John Lennon. He's played with Ozzy as well. Well, Ozzy being in Sabbath, he was asked to be in Ozzy's original Blizzard of Oz band as well. If you listen back to the previous interview I did with him, he mentions all that and uh, a lot of other great, great stuff. Uh, so check that interview out as well. If you didn't know, Heaven and Hell did attempt to move forward with a few different lead singers. Uh, Glenn Hughes, uh, Jorn Landy, and Rob Halford. But due to scheduling, due to just the vibe not being there, they didn't move forward. He mentions that in the other interview. But this interview is going to focus on the new Kill Devil Hill project, or the Kill Devil Hill band. He stressed in the previous interview that this wasn't a project, that this was going to be his full-time band. So um, let's see. Let's see how that moves forward. The album comes out this week, or this coming week, on the 22nd of May. I've had it for quite some time. I've said it from the moment that I heard it. It's one of my favorite things to come out this year. Uh, I actually wrote a review for Metal Army America, and you can find that. We'll actually have a link to that within the show notes. And, um, yeah, I feel that it's one of the best hard rock albums to come out this year. It definitely has a old-school feel with a new, you know, 2012-2012 sound and vibe. So it, there's a mix of, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and so on. Everything sort of, you know, jammed in there into one collective box and it all sounds really great uh we'll get to that in a moment um what we are going to do with this episode is focus on a few drummers that are discussing this episode tracks that um have recently come out and maybe some tracks that you don't know of that i think you know you should know (laughs) because the drumming is just outstanding on it um What we're going to do, we discussed Dave Grohl and his documentary that he's doing on Sound Studios. Um, I'm not sure if that's the board that they have in the Foo Fighters back and forth uh, documentary. If you haven't seen that documentary, absolutely go out and see it. If you love anything, uh, any music documentaries, it's a must-see I have to say that, you know, for a while there was down on doing the podcast and different things, just a lot of different crap going on. And uh, within the podcasting world, uh, within the music industry and within my personal life. And, you know, it was difficult to, uh, you know, have the energy, have the juices flowing to want to do more episodes. And I saw this documentary and it really sort of blew my mind with a lot of different Things or different mentalities or different ideology that's portrayed or that's brought up during the movie uh, regarding the Foo Fighters, uh, regarding maybe how people should look at music and just accept it 
for what it is. I don't know. Maybe we just overanalyze things and try to get too technical with things. And um, maybe it's not that difficult. Maybe, you know, uh, not saying that simplest is best always, but sometimes it is. I don't know. So anyway, um, Vinny discusses the sound studios uh, project that he's working on that he helped Dave Grohl with. And um, he'll mention the whole connection and everything. And I discussed right at the tail end of the interview a track by them, Crooked Vultures, called Scumbag Blues, which I absolutely love. This is the track. Check it out and see if you love it as much as I do. I love his over-the-top playing on this track. So here you go. Scumbag Blues, them Crooked Vultures.
you go, little scumbag blues by them, Crooked Vultures. And I have to admit to one thing. Um, I did an interview with someone a while back regarding Queens of the Stone Age, actually for the Classic Albums column, regarding Queens of the Stone Age songs for the deaf. To me, Dave Grohl's playing puts that album over the top. And taking that into consideration and taking them Crooked Vultures into consideration, listening to the sound the feeling, the power behind his playing, and what it was like on those first two Foo Fighters albums. You know, I was always like, oh, you know, the band is, you know, sucked without, you know, Dave playing drums, and, you know, sucked isn't even a fair assessment, um, because I think that opinion sucks in itself. I think once I saw, again, the back-and-forth documentary by Foo Fighters, it all clicked, it made sense. Um... It, they remind me in the end, after watching that documentary, a lot of one of my other favorite bands in Queen. In the sense that Queen's had albums that have been maybe a little bit more rock, a little harder edge to them. Uh, other albums that are a lot poppier and have a lot of different things. You know, they didn't do the same thing album after album. And, you know, that's something to really be appreciated. And I think that. When you take what Queen did into consideration, okay, a lot of people focus on, you know, A Night at the Opera, but News for the World really, you know, takes them in a slightly different direction, and then Jazz, and then The Game, and so on and so forth. So the band was always evolving, and I look at that Foo Fighters documentary, and I see a lot of those same aspects, you know, as much as I love the color and the shape, and I think the color and the shape, and this is interesting, I think Dave Grohl has played on three of the most important rock albums to have come out in the last 30 years. Obviously, Nirvana's never mind. I think Foo Fighters' Color and the Shape and Queens of the Stone Age songs for the deaf. So um, that has a lot to say for his playing and you know his musicianship and songwriting and, and everything else. Uh, maybe in the Nirvana album, he wasn't as important in the songwriting. Uh, maybe he his name isn't up there with Kurt Cobain's name, at least not at that time. But I think his track record speaks for itself. And I think, again, going back and uh, seeing what Taylor discusses about how the music comes together, seeing how, with Wasting Light, how everything comes together, I think it all makes sense now. Um, and I don't have the same opinion. Um, I think that each album is a definite evolution of the band, and there are songs and albums that I like more than than others. Color and the Shape is still my favorite album by the band, without a doubt. Um, I often talk about people wanting to bring back certain members of bands and recreate, you know, an era that's impossible to recreate. Um... Another very important album is Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. As important as that album is, as good as that album is, I don't think those five musicians will ever be able to recreate that magic. And no matter what they would do if they got back together again, people would find different things to pick out and nitpick and say, you know what, it just isn't the same, it's this or that, you know. Music helps form a very uh, an emotional attachment between the listener 
and the people actually playing that music. Uh, for years, you heard, you know, how people were connected to those first two Dio albums, for example, Holy Diver and The Last in Line. And sort of panned a lot of the other albums, and some of them have some really good, good music on them, you know. Uh, but there wasn't that same emotional attachment because the listener was no longer 15, 17, whatever, you know, whatever you have. Um, you weren't in that delicate situation where music was what hugged you and embraced you and you embraced it and it helped you through a lot of the crappier times you know that's what music does and that's why you know i think a lot of aspects i mean with me personally uh it's almost like my best friend per se because whenever you know something difficult happens you turn to that album you turn to those songs that always help you know pick you up dust you off and say all right I'm going to get through this, you know, the situation sucks, but I'm going to get through this. And again, we keep discussing Foo Fighters and Dave Grohl here, but he is pertinent to the interview. Um, I think that's the thing with the color and the shape with me. That was a certain point of time where there was a lot of uncertainty uh, in my life. And that album, you know, especially... You know, the, the how the album builds up and it's so strong, uh, especially in the beginning, um, until it gets to some of the maybe softer side of the album. And maybe I took some of that for granted. I've revisited that album a lot lately and appreciate the entire album as a whole as as almost like a photo album where it's, you know, different things encompassed throughout that album. Anyway, I need to stop kissing Foo Fighter ass right now and Dave Grohl ass but uh, if you've never listened to that album yes it isn't metal um, it is definitely a rock album it's got rock it's got hard rock mixed in there and um, definitely check it out um, another band that sort of around the same time really stepped forward in my life uh, was Anthrax was always a fan of Anthrax um, but I think things really took off when John Bush took over. Same thing, there's a very emotional attachment um, between their music and me. Albums like Sound of White Noise, uh, Volume 8, The Threat is Real, um, even Stomp 442, and uh, We've Come For You All. And I don't say this with diminishing Joey at all. Or say, oh, you know, Joey sucks, blah, blah, blah. I love a lot of Anthrax with Joey Belladonna in it. And I think initially when I listened to The Devil You Know, I didn't care for it that much because there was sort of that, you know, John Bush was, you know, that guy. He was, you know, that voice that helped, you know, again, helped, dust me off and, and help me move forward in a lot of situations as as corny as that may sound um and there are a bunch of other things that um you know their their connection to um the New York Steel project if you've ever listened to any of my podcasts in the past you'll know that I was present um on 911 uh when that second plane hit the twin towers I was about you know, a uh, hundred yards away and witnessed everything. And Anthrax was there at that New York Steel benefit. And that was, you know, sort of the first thing that sort of shook me and said, you know what? 
you'll be all right. You know, you need to get through this and you need to move forward. And, you know, that that will always be a very special um, concert for me. And um, anytime I speak to someone that was involved in that show, I always thank them for, you know, being part of the healing process. I've spoken to Blitz from Overkill, uh, Charlie Benante. Uh, I spoke to, actually, um, John Schaefer from Ice to Earth and thanked him as well because of the Ice to Earth song, When the Eagle Cries. And, um, you know, if I ever get a chance to speak to anyone from Twisted Sister or Ace Freely, uh, anyone that was in his band, you know, at the time, I'd do the same thing. Um, so yeah, there you go. And I keep rambling and want to fit some music in here before getting to, uh, Vinny's interview. But anyway, uh, getting back to Anthrax, Charlie Benante to me is the most underrated drummer out of the big four. Uh, everyone talks about Dave Lombardo. Everyone talks about Lars Ulrich for better or for worse. Uh, the various drummers that Megadeth has had. A lot of people have that connection to Nick Menza. But, you know, Gar Samuelson was a tremendous drummer as well. Sean Drover's a tremendous drummer. Uh, they've always had great musicians in that band. Charlie Benante to me sticks out for, you know, the reasons that I've mentioned. But also because he hasn't been scared to take chances with his playing or his songwriting. Uh, and that's always something that has really made an impression on me. Uh, here's a track off of uh, We've Come For You All. It is Nobody Knows Anything. The playing on this track is unbelievable. Just the, the, the rhythm that he's playing throughout the track. I don't know of anyone else that would have come up with something like this and seeing the video of him playing this track and making it just seem so easy to play um is just unbelievable uh, hopefully um hopefully anthrax will do something that uh, John Bush mentioned when I interviewed him uh, I asked him if he thought that they should now do the greater of two evils part 2 with Joey Belladonna doing John Bush era songs and he laughed and he mentioned that, um, you know, they should. They should sort of do things to keep that part of the Anthrax legacy alive since he did it with Joey's stuff. Uh, whether that happens or not, we'll see. But anyway, off of We Come For You All, Nobody Knows by Anthrax. Trust 
From Anthrax, we go to Shadows Fall. Jason Bittner has been kind enough to lend his comments to our Classic Albums column month after month. And um, Shadows Fall has just put out a new album by the name of Fire from the Sky. We're going to get into a track called Divide and Conquer by Shadows Fall. Divide and Conquer by Shadows Fall. Uh, wrapping the music segment up, we're going to get into a little Angela Sepatrida, or actually I should say wrapping things up before jumping into the Vinnie Apice portion of the episode. Uh, we're getting into Angela Sepatrida. Uh, we had Guillermo on the last podcast, their lead singer and guitarist. I also have a review up there on Metal Army America regarding their album, The Call. We're going to get into a track off of The Call. Since we started off with Gates of Hell by Kill Devil Hill, this is At the Gates of Hell by Angelus Apatrida. <laughs>
There You Go, At the Gates of Hell by Angela Sepatrida. Check the call out. A very, very strong album by the band. If you aren't familiar with them, they're from Spain. And uh, this album is a digital-only release in the States. In Europe, you could pick it up on CD, vinyl, and all that good, good stuff. Uh, remind you that we have the Facebook page, Google+, Twitter, and a bunch of other social networks that we're involved with. Uh, go to MarsAttacksRadio.com and uh, check out links to all that good stuff. And sign up and tell all your friends about us and help you know the, the word get out there regarding the Mars Attacks podcast. Uh, to clear things up, some people wrote in and uh, said, oh, you mentioned that. Mars Attacks Radio is going away. No, no, no. Let me re-explain this uh, just to clear any doubt. The website, MarsAttacksRadio.com, is fine. It's not going anywhere. The podcast is going to continue to come out. The thing is, the radio show that was up on Mark Striegel Radio uh, is no more. Mark Striegel decided to fold the station for economic reasons and uh, we're looking for other alternatives, possibly opening up our own stream, uh, jumping on someone else's, or seeing what else is out there. Maybe not even doing uh, a radio show for the time being. But, uh, you know, we're going to assess all of the options and um, see where it goes from there. So don't fear. Uh, com, and the podcast will continue to come out. So I uh, also want to thank various people for checking in. Want to um, thank uh, Orlando for listening. Want to thank uh, uh, Gabriel, the metal dentist, for uh, supporting Mars Attacks and wearing the uh, prototype Mars Attacks t-shirt, uh, which may or may not go into production. We'll, we'll see about that. Uh, but anyway... Um, Quickly, uh, the Ironcast Ring, if you're not sure of what the Ironcast Ring is, it's a network of podcasts that Mars Attacks is now a part of. Just jump on over to castironring.com and you'll see, for example, Radioactive Metal just put out episode 216 with Holy Grail, a great band from L.A. If you follow this podcast, you know all about Holy Grail, White Wizard, and all of the subsequent bands that have... Uh, come out of the White Wizard family tree. You have Shockwave's Hard Radio, episode 59. One of their guests is the great Martin Popoff, who's also commented uh, on the Classic Albums column. Uh, Also has uh, Joel McIver and Ian Christie, if I'm not mistaken. Focus on Metal, episode 85, with A Sound of Thunder, a cool new uh, female-fronted metal band. Uh, I'm saying new, they're new to me anyway. And uh, going back to a week before, uh, Radioactive Metal with Future Billion Dollar Babies, uh, Iron City Rocks with John Five of Rob Zombie and Marilyn Manson fame, uh, Focus on Metal, focusing on uh, Big Metal Ramble is what they have here. And that takes us back to the last uh, Mars Attacks episode, which was last week. Um, Oh, last thing I wanted to touch on. Uh, There's been news that have come out that Vivian Campbell all of a sudden has gotten 
all of the original members of the Dio band together, including Vinnie Apice, and they're potentially going to play a play a few shows with um, Andrew Freeman, I believe his name is, uh, as the lead singer. Should be interesting from what I've heard. He doesn't try to emulate Dio. He tries to do it in his own way, so we'll see how that all works out. Um, I'm sure that many people, um, <coughs> Bob Miller, uh, will mention that it's a cash grab. Uh, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, if you're trying to, you know, uh, do a tribute to someone, I mean, I don't know, they're, everyone's entitled to do whatever they want. I mean, give me a break. If you've been a musician all your life, who's anyone to say, you know what, you can no longer play music. You got to go, you know, sweep a sidewalk now for a living. Give me a break. So, you know, if someone wants to keep someone's memory alive and wants to do a tribute to them by playing their music, you know, so be it. Uh, whether it's for money or whatnot, you know, I don't know. It's up to them and, and their conscience. So uh, it's not for me to judge or, or decide. Uh, also, uh, I guess tonight we'll find out who the drummer is for the Black Sabbath shows. Uh, Vinny mentions during this episode that it, it's not him. This was recorded in February, and since then, all the dates have been whittled down to three dates. So we'll see. Um, we'll see who the drummer is, or if it's Tommy from uh, from Ozzy's band or not. So, anyway, enough babbling on my end. Uh, let's get into the track "Revenge" off of Kill Devil Hill. Vinny discusses this during the interview, and that will lead us to the interview portion with Vinny.
So one of the things that really stuck with me when um, when I listened to the album was something that you had promised during the previous interview that the drums would be right up front, would be in your face, and you know, with just listening to how the album is mixed. You know, it feels like the toms are beating you in the chest. It feels like, you know, your heart's beating along to the to the bass drum, so on and so forth. Um, how difficult was it to achieve this sound? Well, it, it's uh, interesting because we had, uh, a, you know, the album was recorded by Warren Riker. And, uh, and then the mix was mixed by this guy, Jay Rustin, who's uh, unbelievable and... He, you know, he's one of those guys where, because we were trying to, we had a couple of problems along the way, and we wound up in the studio trying to mix it ourselves. And, uh, you know, and it sounded good and everything, but, you know, you don't realize how hard it is until you're in there. It's not just levels. It's the way things gel together and how to make them work together. So Jay Rustin, we gave him uh, somebody – recommended Jay and we gave him a song and he mixed it and it was like, wow, you know, so we just gave it to Jay and then he mixed it and then, uh, send it and we would just make comments on what we thought was, uh, we needed more of and less of. And, and, uh, so we left it in his hands, you know, and, uh, a couple of times I said, you know, bring the drums up a little bit, bring the big kick up and the snare up. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, he was very aware of, uh, all the uh, tom fills and all the fills going around the drums because sometimes you know you hear records where the and even i've heard myself where you know you do a fill and you can hear the snare and then the toms go away you know things like that so he was very aware and that's a sign of somebody that's really listening to everything that all the fills were there all the rest of the instruments you know were there when somebody did a a bass run or a guitar run you could hear it you know hear all the notes right so um Really, it was just uh, down to Jay just mixing it and letting him uh, do his thing. He did a great job. Yeah, absolutely. It's so hard to find nowadays an album that's mixed <clears throat> that full, where it's exactly what you're saying. You know, the the drum sound is full. You hear absolutely everything that's going on. Right. You hear the, the bass running up and down and, and so on and so forth. Right. Um One of the things that also sort of struck me, I spoke to Rex last week, and until he brought the word Pro Tools up, it never dawned on me that this album was recorded in a digital format. It's got such an old school feel to it, but it doesn't sound dated. It feels very modern and fresh at the same time. Yeah, it's it's got, uh, because I know some people like tape, you know, to record on the tape. Right. I think that the uh, excuse me one second. Sure. I'm dying over here. Uh, I think the <laughs> trick to Pro Tools, is, especially with drums, is to get the the drums. You know, if you're hitting them hard, getting them to the sound that way in Pro Tools. You know, sometimes Pro Tools, mm-hmm. for some reason, I find that it mellows out the drums a little bit. So it takes somebody somebody special and a good engineer, which we had uh, Warren Riker to capture the drums, especially onto digital format and make them sound like I'm hitting them. So right. we, you know, I like the idea of Pro Tools. Uh, <clears throat> it's just a lot quicker. It's a lot easier, you know, doing it that way than on tape. And then uh, we did it kind of old school where we played 
the song in the room together. You know, we played mm-hmm. the entire song, and we uh, didn't use a click. You know, we played, huh, got okay. the tempo, and then played like what we did in the '80s, basically. And uh, that's what right. we wanted to do. And I hear a lot of people going back to some some of that stuff. You know, right. <clears throat> I just did this uh, little project with Dave Grohl a couple of weeks ago, and we did it on tape, you know. So we mm-hmm. had to fix a couple of little drum bits, you know. So it was a different thing fixing them, uh, you know, on tape. You got to make sure we're punching in. There's no punch noise, and you know, it took right. a little longer, but it was fun doing it because you have we haven't worked on tape in a while, you know. So right. Some of the tracks really stood out to me straight from the first listen uh tracks like war machine voodoo doll i mentioned time and time again before up in flames and the very zeppelin-esque intro uh to revenge uh can you mention anything about these tracks uh mention them which ones again of revenge and which other two uh war machine voodoo doll okay and up in flames um it's funny because war machine was uh See, the, the way this band started, it's really crazy, right? I killed my shoulder on the last Heaven and Hell tour because I had a giant drum set, and the drums, half of them were all up in the air above my shoulders and behind me. So playing like that for the both tours we did, long tours, I killed my, my uh, shoulder, and I wound up coming off the tour, and I was really hurting. So I, I was informed I needed to get surgery. So mm-hmm. right before the surgery, I had a deal with some company to just record 13 drum tracks, different tempos, different feels, and then we were going to do like a download thing and put them on the internet. So huh, uh, okay, so that was in place, and then uh, right, I was scheduled to go into surgery in January. And uh, my friend Jeff Pilson was recording the drum tracks. He said, why don't you come in? This is November. Why don't you come in? I'm home early this week, and we'll do them tomorrow. I said, okay, great. So luckily I did that because then the hospital called and said, we had an opening for surgery next week. Do you want to do it? I said, yeah, because I wanted to get it over with because it was a six-month healing process. So I recorded these songs, these drum tracks, and then I got the surgery and then a week after the surgery, I'm sitting there in a the sling in my little studio, and I'm going, man, this sucks. I can't play. I can't create. I can't do anything musical. So I started listening to the tracks I recorded, and they came out great. They're really cool sound on them. And uh, So I called uh, Jimmy Bain, <clears throat> who I've been working with. I said, Jimmy, why don't you come down and play the, on some of this stuff, see what we can come up with. So <clears throat> we worked on a like, couple of tunes. So he played the, the existing drum tracks, because I played them like, blocks of four, you know, an intro, verse, chorusy feel, you know, like I was playing a song. So he, right. he was able to play some stuff to it. And then uh, guitar player Mark Zavon, somebody gave me his name, I called him, and uh, I said, all right, let's see how he works to, with us together. So he came down, we started putting guitar on these tracks, and one of them uh, was uh, War Machine, you know, mm-hmm. it had that fast feel. So, right. uh, and that's the way the band started. Then he had a, a CD of Dewey Bragg, the singer. He played it for me. Immediately knew that's the guy I want. I loved his voice, sang great, and had hmm. more of that modern sound. Right. So uh, that's the way a lot of the first couple of songs were written to these drum tracks. And then uh, I Mark took the fast track home, which was War Machine, and he played 
he put the song together around the drums. And we only did mm-hmm. a little bit of editing on the on the demo <clears throat> to make it work as a song. So it was interesting. <clears throat> so that was uh, War Machine. <clears throat> Up in Flames was a uh, thing. Uh, Mark had some riffs. And I mean, uh, a lot of the songs, me and Mark went in the studio and just jammed and picked out the parts we liked, put them together, and then Dewey <clears throat> wrote lyrics about uh, his house catching fire. You know, this was a couple of years <laughs> back. So uh, right. that one came from from jamming together and putting the, the, the tracks together and then uh uh which other one? Revenge. Revenge was uh you know, again another day Mark and I were jamming and uh I just started hearing this weird beat in my head. So I started working it out what I sometimes you could hear it in your head but it's not exactly what you're playing. <laughs> so I worked it out. Right. And I went, This is cool so he started playing to it and we jammed on that. And then at the end of like 10 minutes of that fast jam, we, uh, we just hung out and, and <clears throat> excuse me, I'm started, I started playing the end of it, which is that slow beat. And I just wanted to change it completely, not knowing what the hell was happening. <clears throat> right. It was just for fun. And then I started playing that slow beat and Mark started playing to it. <clears throat> and then we listened to it later and we went, wow, this is really cool what you played here. And I like this part, so we started putting it together. And then we left that ending just as a joke, you know. It's like, <laughs> okay, let's see what happens. And then we we definitely we played it again, and we got more of a song out of it. <clears throat> and then we copied and pasted some of the parts together, and we got that works. So we recorded it, and then we left that end on. And it <laughs> developed into that song, you know. So uh, we do, I, we, you know, it's crazy stuff. We'll jam a little bit, and, you know, it's, and and a lot of people do it that way. You jam, and then you hear like thirty seconds of something that's magical. Take that, right? Go, okay, let's build on that. So, uh, so that's the way those songs. A lot of those songs came up around, and then uh, a couple of them. Mark had some, a lot of the the, the chords and things like that, and uh, so it's a lot of different ways we went about these songs. Okay, and um, one of the first things that sort of stood out to me, I guess maybe from the mix, but it had almost like a, and not the sound of the music per se, but the way that the band was maybe sounding, um, well, it felt like the Who or Zeppelin in the sense that there's a very big um, foundation with the rhythm with you and with Rex, and then there's a guitar player that's almost like the glue that keeps everything together. Isn't over the top, isn't too flashy, but knows how to stick out in all the right places. Um, would you feel that's a fair assessment? Yeah, that's actually a good uh, assessment of it. Um, you know, Rex has such a big, giant bass sound, and he's like the foundation of the the whole song. And then, you know, I play the Rex, but then I like to go off a lot, you know, and, and play a little fill against them or something. And then there's been a couple of times where we're playing together on the fills, which is cool. And then, right. uh, you know, Mark plays with us and then he goes off, plays a little counter thing and then comes back in. And, uh, we, we, you know, we had, uh, some of the songs have cool little guitar parts on them. You know, they're not just all everybody playing the same riff together, you know, right. A couple of them stop. Mark goes into something else. And, uh, uh, but yeah, that's, that's a good assessment where, we don't, you know, it's it's a thing called overplaying, you know, it's no good to overplay, you know, right. the best thing in the world is to play from your, what you feel, you know, from your heart mm-hmm. 
And uh, I always did that. You know, I know I play a lot more fills sometimes than other people would play, but they're not just for fills. I'm just feeling it that way, you know? Right. Sometimes people have to say, <laughs> don't do so many fills, you know? But it's, right. it's from it's from the heart, you know? That's what I feel. So I think Mark feels the same way where he, uh, he uh, you know, <clears throat> puts the stuff in the right places and, and doesn't overplay. And then when he goes to a solo, it burns, you know? He's a great, amazing mm-hmm. guitar player, so... Uh, yeah, yeah, and some great, cool little uh, guitar frills and licks and everything on there. So. Okay, and as far as Dewey's voice, it's cool to hear that you know the voice really stood out to you right off the bat. To me, it sounds uh, somewhat refreshing. Where a lot of what's going on nowadays, you would have you know heard something um, in a totally different direction over the music that you guys have put together. So it's cool to hear all those melodies and different things that he's bringing to the table. Yeah. I think Dewey, Dewey's a very unique singer. He's got a great voice and, um, he, he hears weird harmonies in his head. You know, Mm -hmm. some of these harmonies, when, when we do vocals, I sit there and go, wow, that's an (laughs) odd one, man. I don't know how you could even find that note, you know, and he hears a lot of minory kind of harmonies and, and, He's just great at coming up with uh, lyrics and then coming up with uh, vocal hooks. And he works together with Mark, and they work together on some of the stuff, and they both work great together coming up with lyrics and and the hooks. But uh, Dewey comes up with some odd, really weird harmonies and some hooks, and it's a different different way you would, uh, you know, you probably wouldn't expect it so much with the heavy music, you know. And then he does do the screaming thing, you know, but it's not all over the place, and it's not that, uh, you know, shouting kind of aggression kind of vocal lead thing. It's actually got a lot of uh, melody to it, you know. It, it might be minory, and but it's still melody, and then he screams certain places and drives it up a notch. And uh, I love the way he sings. He's just amazing. And 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 he's the real deal. What he looks like, that's what, that's what he is. He wakes up in the morning, that's him, you know, if he wakes up in the morning, that is. So, uh <laughs> So he's the real deal. Because when I put this together, um, I got a lot of CDs and MP3 sent to me saying, hey, I'm a singer, and I sing like Ronnie, and I sing like Ronnie. I could sing all Ronnie stuff. And people didn't realize, well, you know what? Ronnie was, Ronnie's era you know, with me is over because he's not here. you know. And I, I played with the best. There's never going to be anybody that sings like Ronnie, Ronnie James Dio. So I was I wasn't looking to go that direction, you know. I didn't want the same kind of vocalist or somebody trying to be like Ronnie. I wanted something new, and that's why as soon as I heard him sing, I went, "That's the guy." It was easy easy to make a decision like this guy's great, yeah. Okay, and can you tell us a little bit about the kit that you used when recording the album? The kit was a new kit I got uh, from D Drums because I recently went over to D Drum last year, and it's a Made in America Maple kit. And uh, it was a small kit. Usually in the studio, I only use two toms up front on the racks and two floor toms. And the snare drums varied. Uh, I used the snare drum that came with the kit, which was this five-inch wood maple drum. And then Dewey had a big, uh, like, five-and-a-half, six-inch. I think it was six-inch drum, that, that uh, an old pearl, I think it was. And I used that a little bit. I, I used the DW snare. You know, I wanted to change the snare sounds a little bit on the songs. 
because sometimes it bugs me when I hear an album and the drums sound exactly the same on every song. You know, I don't, for some reason, that kind of bugs me a little bit, you know. I like I like the, the drums to take on the personality of the song a little bit. Maybe they change a little bit. And so so we did that, you know, and uh, that gave it a, different kinds of sounds, you know, on each song. Understand you 100%. As, as a drummer myself, I know what it's like to listen to an album and just hear the drums sounding just very linear <clears throat> and with no dynamics whatsoever, thinking, you know, if they varied the sound at all, this would have, you know, the song would have had a completely different life to it. You're exactly right. I mean, listen to Zeppelin stuff, some of the old Zeppelin stuff. The drums don't sound the same. <laughs> Actually, the songs don't sound the same on some of the stuff, you know? Right. Uh, and... uh you know, some, uh, I think on the first album was more consistent. Then on the later albums, the drums changed a little bit, different sounds on different songs slightly, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was cool. I always thought that was cool. I hear albums. I just heard an album. I forgot what, what I was listening to. And it was a good album, And but the drums sounded the same on every song, you know, that sound yeah. of them. And not saying they didn't play good or anything like that. They played great. But it was very generic. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I like it when – I like it like what you just said, the dynamics are there, you know? Like, yeah. Because I don't hit all the same all the time. I hit hard, but I play with, uh, I try to play with a lot of soul. I, I, you know, like the feel, like Motown. I used to live in the Motown when I grew up. And I like the feel of, you know, snare drum, some of the two and fours could be louder in certain parts than they are in other parts. And I think mm-hmm. that's a cool thing, you know? Rather than the same exact snare hit in every song, you know? That's, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, it's like a drum machine, you know? Yeah, uh, I agree. And that was actually one of the, well, the next question that I had. Uh, from when you started playing to today, to 2012, what do you feel is the most important change to, say, um, drumming or recording? And what do you feel is the biggest detriment that's come along? Well, you know, back in the day... Jeez, when I started, there wasn't so much technical. As far as the drums themselves, there wasn't. There was more old school stuff, you know, like right the the way people learned. They went through the books probably that I went through: Syncopation, Stick Control, Jim Chapman book, all the old old style books, you know. And then people started improvising on them, and then all of a sudden, people are going through those books with their feet. And now I watch some of these new drummers, you know, at these like guitar center drum offs and stuff and it's like holy crap it's like drum drum science you know i mean i sit there i go how'd they do that you know how the hell are you? it's like a science now it's gotten so complicated and so amazing um and uh so it's changed big time there there's so much more to learn now when you're learning how to play and and plus you got so much more access to information with the internet and stuff kids that are learning how to play now can look on the internet take lessons on the internet or see somebody playing and, and, you know, I remember when I grew up, when Buddy Rich was on Johnny Carson, I used to stay up late. My mom would, parents would let me stay up late to watch Buddy Rich. And that was something like, wow, this is cool. Buddy's going to be on tonight. You couldn't just pull it up when you wanted to. You had to wait till the show was on and then watch it. And, you know, very few of those moments, uh, not like now. So, uh, as far as recording, uh, recordings, gotten you know probably easier now with pro tools anybody can learn how to record in their house 
you get the right mics and stuff, but there's still a lot that goes along with, with getting the right sound and how to get it and knowing what you're doing, you know. And uh, like I said before, with Pro Tools, the hard thing is trying to get the drums to sound aggressive enough on the, on the Pro Tools. I mean, I always find that I, I am in there playing really hard, and I go in and listen, and it sounds softer. And uh, But with only a few people engineering, it sounded the way it, I played. It sounded aggressive. So you got to know what you're doing with that. And uh, um, and then as far as anything negative about that stuff, uh, you know, it's it's all technology. There's so much more technology, and you have to kind of go with the flow a little bit and learn uh, uh, what you can use and how you can get your sound and stuff. I think the most important thing is learning what you want to sound like. That's the hard thing. That's the hardest thing, you know, or developing your own sound, you know. Because uh, that takes a while, that and that's, you can't practice that. You know, that's something that comes along with experience and playing and tuning drums and trying different heads and then finding things you like. You know, so it takes a while to get your own sound. You know. Okay, and you mentioned something interesting with this album. You didn't play to a click track. Do you feel that? Uh, all these years with people getting used to playing to a click track, that that's actually taken away from the music? I've heard some drummers actually complain about that. Well, you know, when the click track first started becoming popular, I didn't like it. I mean, it was like, oh, man, a click track? Because all the stuff I did with Dio and Sabbath, uh, except for the recent Devil You Know album we did, was all, you know, it was it was all on tape and it was no click tracks. You know, we we just got the start time, like on a metronome or something. Went, okay, there's the tempo, and that's it. So uh, I hated it in the beginning. Then as I started getting used to it, and I started doing some more out stuff, you know, like sessions and things, I, then I really, I became, it became nothing to me, you know. And I think it, it depends what you're doing. If you're trying to lay something down fast, the people you, you're not, is not your band, like you're doing a session, it probably helps and and keeps the the song tighter and and steadier obviously but with your own band that you've been on stage with and you played a lot of shows with and you you all feel each other then that might be easier not to play with a click you know so i find it helps and i find it it it, it does both you, you know for me with the band i don't really need it and with outside things I think it helps, you know, because uh, the best way is to try it without it and see where the song's sitting and then try it with it. But now I have no problem playing with the click. I, when, when the click's on, I just hear it and I kind of play. I don't even play to it anymore. I just hear it and I play, you know, and I'm aware of it. Yeah, that's where you got to get to that point where you're not listening to the click so much and playing to the click. But then it's like the click's taken over. You have to hear the click in your head, you know, in your headphones and then just play, you know, and then learn how to get, and then learn how to get, if you go off a little bit, learn how to go back, you know, subtle, subtle, so you can't even tell, you know, get back on the click track. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I'm currently reading Tony Iommi's book, and he mentions that when you first joined the band, that you had one of the smallest kits he's ever seen. <laughs> How true is this? Oh, that's true, because uh, I got a call to come down to play with Sabbath, uh, I don't know, 79 or something. 
So I had a little kit, you know. I was I was in my own band called Axis, and we were playing, you know, places around L.A., and we did a little tour. We had one album out, but it was a small kit. You know, we didn't have any money, and I think I had a deal at that time with Ludwig, so I had just two toms up front, two toms on the on the floors, and one bass drum. So mm-hmm. I got the call from Sabbath. I went to meet with Tony the night before. Everything went well. They said, come down and play. So I had a 67 Mustang. The drums fit in the Mustang. There were no, <laughs> they were concert toms. So, you know, two drums could fit, you know, one drum could fit inside the other. You know? Right. So there were four drums. So I really, when they fit inside each other, there were two in the bass drum snare <clears throat> and a little bag of hardware. So I went down drove up we unloaded it they helped me set it up the roadies and uh and that was a little kit so when i played with them (laughs) tony after it was decided that i was doing the i was going to do the rest of the tour until bill came back that was the heaven and hell tour tony asked me hey can you play double bass can you make the kit bigger i said well uh, i don't really play double bass but i'll make it bigger somehow so then I, I eventually, I think I got another tom up front, so there were three toms, and then I got two aerial toms, shoulder height, you know, facing my shoulders, basically, to make it look bigger. And that's what we went out with on that first tour, you know. And then I thought, this is cool, now I get it, you know, playing arenas, and I got the whole bug, and then it was like the next tour, or well, during that tour, I got two more, and then the tour after that, I got two more, you know, I wound up putting... <laughs> putting all these drums up in the air, then I got a little bit bigger drums. So then on the last Heaven and Hell show, I had like 21 pieces, 21 drums. It was a monster kit. So Tony started me on that. So it's his fault. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was a funny situation, you know. Yeah. It was funny when I read it. It <clears throat> made me laugh instantly. So I had to ask. Well, you know, with the concert toms, there's no head on the bottom. So you're losing yeah. on like an inch from the rim and you, you, it, the drums tend to look smaller, and then the bass drum, I had one. I always took the front head off, and then that time I used to keep the front head entirely off, so there was no rim in the front, so it made the bass drum look smaller. So the drums right. looked small, you know, because of those things, and uh, smaller than they actually were, you know. Okay, and I'm sure you're fielding a, a decent amount of Bill Ward questions at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you could pull off opening up for Sabbath and playing double duty, Kill Devil Hill and with Sabbath, um, would there be any doubt in your mind to do a tour like that? Oh, no, that would be fun. That would be so cool. You know, I would be in such good shape doing something like that. No, that would be the coolest thing in the world, you know, but, uh, uh, yeah, I, it's not a problem for me. You know, I, I still got, uh, a lot of energy, and I'm, I'm still got fire in me, so I, that would be easy. By the time you know, we we've done two shows before, like we, especially with Dio, we used to do two shows: one in the afternoon, one at night. Man, by the time you play the one at night, you're so warmed up. Or I've done a drum clinic in the day, and then a show at night, and you're so warmed up. You play, you know, tend to play really, really great and uh, nice and loose, you know. So that would be that would be awesome, but uh, you know. I don't know what's going on. I know as much as everybody else, I heard that uh, Tommy, Ozzy's drummer's playing with them right now, and uh, it's hard to tell what's going on, you know. But and I was just, I was like everybody else. I was surprised. I thought everything was sealed, signed, sealed, delivered, and then to hear that the the bill problem came up, I went, "Wow, that's crazy, man." 
you know, because because yeah. it's happened before. So, so I, I, you know, just everybody uh, will have to wait and see what happens. You know. Yeah, interesting that everyone's rushed to judgment when you know if you're not in the middle of all that, you really don't know what the hell's going on. So. Yeah, and then the last I did an interview last week with somebody. I don't know. And you know, he asked the same question. Everybody's asking questions. So I said, well, you know, it would be um, it would be hard to turn down. Obviously, you know, playing with Tony Geezer and Ozzy, you know, it's a, a legendary thing. It's part of rock history. It's a, it's gonna be, it's a big, huge thing. And it's we, a no-brainer. <laughs> yeah, and we we talked about it, and then the next thing I know, that's the headlines going everywhere. Blast. Yeah. Vinny says he would. It would be hard to turn down. I went, oh, no, this is a Kill Devil Hill interview. And then they take just what yeah. I said. And it's just, but I guess that's what it's all about. So anyway, anyway, I love those guys. And I just want Tony to pull, uh, you know, pull through with all his uh, treatment and go out and kick ass, whether it's with whoever's playing the drums. You know, right. I just want him to be healthy. And uh, I love those guys. Okay, and my last question: You mentioned the Dave Grohl um, piece that you had recorded. I actually saw you in the um, the trailer that he released for the documentary, and I was like, "Holy <laughs> shit, was that Vinny Appice?" Yeah. So, uh, uh, can you say um, anything regarding your involvement in that, or do you need to keep that on the down low? Well, I don't know what the story is. I, I've seen. I just seen that trailer myself and uh it was uh i thought it was really cool it's it's a project about the uh sound city studios that uh we did holy diver there and and nirvana did their album there the first album and uh right so you know dave's putting together some a cool like documentary on it and uh so i don't know if i'm supposed to say anything more than that right now so i won't but we had it was a you know a really cool time that uh Back then, and then putting this thing together, I was involved a little bit in it, and, and it was really cool to work with Dave. So we'll see. He's he's just getting this going now, so this should be real cool. So I know Dave. I know Dave from a while ago. You know, we we he used to come see Sabbath, and when I forgot what tour was, what which one tour that was, but uh, you know, he, he he I met him a long time ago, and he just he, he said he was a big Sabbath fan, and and then. Uh, and then I love Dave. I love the way he plays. I've seen him play a lot, and uh, the the best thing was him seeing him playing with John Paul Jones. You know that was so cool. I was just right on the side of the stage watching both of them. And Dave, Dave is so talented, man. He's unbelievable. So such a talented musician. Yeah. Yeah, he's got that one song with that project called Scumbag Blues, where he's doing all these fills and just his feel with the set. Just how he's playing is just unbelievable. So yeah, I I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, I mean you listen to him play and you go, wow, you know. I mean you see him play guitar and sing, you go, oh my god, you know, my what a songwriter, what a singer, and he's he's a great guitar player. And then you hit, you know, he's a drummer too. <laughs> he started on the drums, then you hear him play and he kicks ass. I love that. This is Benny Apsey from Kill Devil Hill, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. <laughs>
Hangman by Kill Devil Hill. want to thank Vinny Apice for coming aboard once again to discuss this album. Uh, the next episode should feature Mark Zavon of Kill Devil Hill as well. And The Skull. If you're wondering who The Skull are, they're members of, or former members, of a band you may know of called Trouble. I got to speak to uh, Ollie. Jeff Olson and Eric Wagner of The Skull. And uh, we'll bring you that episode next. And after that, the long wait for the next uh, Classic Albums column is over. Uh, It will be Pantera's Far Beyond Driven. So check that out when that is released towards the end of the month. Uh, Thanks again for listening. Remember to go to MarsAttacksRadio.com to keep up with all the latest and greatest news regarding this podcast or anything else surrounding the shows that I put together. And uh, remember to sign up to all the great, great social media sites and like us and um, do whatever you want to make sure that your friends hear about this podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we're going to leave you with one of my favorite tracks off of this album and one of my favorite tracks to come out this year, Voodoo Doll by Kill Devil Hill. (laughs) 